here in the heart of the jungle, we find one of the most interesting creatures of its kind. Amazon PPC Advertising. Buried deep amongst the undergrowth with its campaigns and targeting, lay hazards like keywords without conversions, unprofitable ad spend, and a mountain of ever-evolving complexity. But if you look beyond the obstacles of life here, there is hope and opportunity. We will journey to every corner of Amazon ads to explore and share the greatest treasures the jungle has to offer. This is the Amazon PPC Den podcast. Welcome everyone to the PPC Den podcast, your favorite podcast for all things Amazon advertising, tips, tricks, strategy, and memes. Uh, I don't know if anyone knows this, but every Friday on LinkedIn, I try to post a PPC meme. You can find it by searching hashtag PPC meme on uh, LinkedIn. Get, get, your, get your laughs on. Uh, Amazon advertising is frustrating enough. Uh, it helps to add some levity to the situation. What was last um, Friday, Michael? What was the meme? The last one that I did, oh man, uh, don't, don't put me on the spot. Don't ask me to do math live on the air and don't ask me to tell you my last meme because what I do is I cycle through a lot of them before I actually publish one. I post them to Slack and I'm like, which one should we use? Um, so uh, I honestly couldn't tell you. Oh man, my mind, my, my brain, where am I? What, what show are we on? Uh, just kidding. We have Blair Forrest from AMZ Prep today. Now, Blair, we're going to be getting into something that is important, that improves revenue, improves profitability, improves business operations across the board. It is perhaps the lifeblood of any e-commerce company operating on Amazon. Uh, and it's kind of like eating your vegetables as a kid, isn't it? It's, it's pretty damn close. Uh, it's the, <laughs> the not-so-sexy side of Amazon that we're, we're going to try to put a good twist on. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's, the, it's the milk in your cereal. It's the jam on your toast. It's, it's a necessity for every brand, whether they want to or not. It's, the, it's what you need in your everyday life. It, Yes. Blair, I'm just going to challenge you real quick. Yep. Vegetables for your kid is not the same as jam on your toast. <laughs> you can tell I don't have kids yet, and th this is a perfect example why. <laughs> uh, no, it, it makes total sense. So I don't exactly know how we got connected, but I'm super stoked we did Natural Connection. And I'm stoked to have you on the show. Uh, inventory management is something we have never talked about on the show. Uh, by the end of it, I'll share my experience with working with clients as the topic of inventory management comes up. We talked a lot about it in like mid 2020 when like COVID first hit and it was time to really be like that was the start of like inventory woes. Uh, so advertising strategy uh, with attention to inventory management was something that I do have experience working with clients and I'm you know, we'll talk a little bit about uh, the advertising and the inventory yin and yang later. Um, but for right now, like inventory management, we all know it's important. I think me as a PPCer, 
I don't know a ton about it. And I think a lot of people listening to the show uh, are either Amazon sellers that I'm guessing could level up on this. Like, it's kind of like one of those things like physical fitness. Like, everyone knows they should be a little bit more right. flexible, but it's like, I got to sit yeah, down. Do I really got to stretch? Yeah. Uh, So, like, I think every Amazon seller, brand manager needs to know more about this. I think if you're an Amazon freelancer or you work at an agency, this is also going to be helpful for you, too, just to better understand the process, what it looks like, what your clients are going through, uh, how to navigate it. So no matter what side of the table you sit on, uh, I'm sure it's going to be useful here. So, Blair, I have to start by asking you, out of all the areas of e-commerce that you could have gone into, whether it be uh, to exercise your entrepreneurship muscle. Uh, it could have been digital marketing, it could have been SEO, it could have been copywriting, it could have been all these different things. What drew you uh, to start amzprep.com, which is where people can find you, amzprep.com. Uh, what, st- what, what pulled you to inventory fulfillment and management? Yeah, digital marketing, I think, would have sounded a lot cooler, too, I think, at the time. But, you know what, Michael, I I pretty much, and it sounds like a lot of things, like, I pretty much fell into it. Um, so, for context, I was an Amazon seller way back when, um, was doing it from a pretty young age. If you guys can probably see or hear me, that may not do too much justice. But um, I always had, like, the knack for doing, like, the garage sale flips before it was cool. Um, so I was doing like the garage sale flips. I was pretty big on like Craigslist at the time. Um, Facebook market was sort of a thing, but then Kijiji came along a couple years later. So I did that going into high school. Uh, so I was doing a little bit of eBay and doing reselling there. Uh, it was almost like the poor man's private label basically at the time. So eBay was good for me uh, going into high school. And then in universities when I got started more in like the Amazon private label space. Uh, what I ended up started doing was I was selling baby caddies. Um, don't get me started. It became the, the joke of Amazon, and uh, I learned my lesson pretty quickly. But uh, at the time here in Canada, they're doing really damn well for kind of my first Amazon experience. But what happened, so like I was in university at the time, um, so this was some years back, and I was sending all these baby caddies to my university dorm. Nice. One, it's probably not the coolest thing to talk about with university girls was me preparing these baby caddies. So that was probably my, my number one mistake. Um, so what ended up happening was that on the weekends, I'd have like some of my friends and family come to my university dorm. We had a couple pallets worth of baby caddies and then we just prepared them for Amazon. University uh, didn't take too much kindness to this. So really quick, I had to go get, um, I don't want to call it a warehouse, but basically a hole in a wall down the street uh, in a city called Kitchener, Ontario. It's, it's, up, it's up north for anyone uh, listening to this in Canada. So I used that for a couple months. It was around probably the size of, of my office. It was like 400 square feet, uh, size of maybe like a really small classroom. Used that for a bit. I was pretty active in all like the Facebook groups at the time. So in Canada, there wasn't really any solution when it came to like, uh, like an Amazon-based warehouse. It was either, and I spoke to them because I didn't really want to handle the baby caddies either, to be honest. Um, but it was either you send it to your own garage um, and then my, my parents would kill me or now the wife would kill me. Or the other option was like send it to like a really large, like formal 3PL, which if you're selling a couple hundred units, it's a suicide mission. They'll never take you on, um, nor are they equipped for Amazon. They usually just, they're like, they're meant for B2B distribution, pallet movement, like the, the big skids and containers. And I just wasn't there. So what happened was like I had just friends in the Facebook 
PPC or network. And uh, they're reaching out to me and just said like, hey, can we use your warehouse per se uh, to do all the preparation? One thing led to another a few years back uh, and then things just started to pick up themselves. So we, we launched a, a kind of a half-built website to try to get some business in. Uh, and this was around four years ago now. And then since then we just started to steamroll. Um, it was just early stage, I think more than anything. So uh, finished off university doing it, jumped into the deep end. We've had to move like five or six times now across warehouses. Um, so now we're in just outside Toronto, Canada. Uh, if anyone's ever been here, it's near like the Pearson International Airport. So we see the planes going over top. So now we have uh, three warehouses on the street. It's around 400,000 square feet, all said and done. Uh, and then we have partner warehouses too. So we'll, we'll manage it, but then it's through uh, another 3PL that we'll take it under control basically. So uh, it's, been a, it's been a journey, but yeah, I, uh, I dove into the deep end. I, I always picture myself being like the guru marketer sitting in uh, Honolulu. And instead mm. I'm, I have a warehouse right behind my back. If we have time, I'll, I'll, I'll show you after Michael, but um, it was a different approach, but I, I wouldn't have had it any other way, I don't think. Right on, very cool. So if we jump into it here, when we're thinking about inventory management strategy, can you describe a business that has very bad inventory management strategy? Like what are the symptoms uh, and like what are the impacts, what are the illnesses and the woes of not having a inventory management, a good, a good, solid, secure, reliable strategy? Well, you you probably see it a lot, Michael, on your end. Like one of the first symptoms that we see, especially if it's like, uh, an agency or it's the platform that's running it or maybe they have a brand manager managing it uh, is that they end up looking at their campaigns and saying okay well why isn't this performing and, but then actually the campaign was auto shut off because there was no product mm. in stock so yeah. that's usually one of the quickest diagnostics is that your campaigns might actually just be underperforming not because the product isn't made sense it's just you didn't get it into the warehouse in time um, and mm. it's mm. usually that's an issue of they didn't they didn't prepare like the three layers that go into making sure the stock's in on time. So one of the symptoms is of course like low harming sales or your campaigns are off because products are to stock. Uh, two is if kind of there's this constant complaint about product turnover or inconsistency in sales. Usually the quickest diagnostic is that your products aren't in stock uh, because there's just no consistency in terms of product move over. Uh, or it might be that you're getting charged really high storage rates. And you're saying, okay, where are all these costs coming from? Uh, and it's because Amazon's probably dinging you because you have overstock, because you didn't plan the inventory strategy properly. You're doing it maybe on a Google Sheet or uh, maybe you have like a partner VA that might be managing it. There's no, um, there's no strategy. And we see it really often where you have an advertising manager or you have like a, a powerful platform like, like PPC, Badger, but it's not talking to the inventory manager. So then... Uh, Michael might be launching a new campaign, but we didn't prepare for that jump in growth on the product side or planning with the warehouse and they had a busy week this week, so they can't get it until next week. They, um, they like to silo those two off, which is usually what mm. we've seen kind of being the detriment is that it's supposed to be a marriage and instead it inventory and warehousing versus advertising strategy almost take um, a divorced approach when it comes to Amazon. Yeah, I have so much experience with ads 
stopping ad, like ads tanking ads taking time to get back up and running to get back to where they were because of stockouts so like that's a really big one and i'm also thinking of the ppc meme that will be produced next to this episode i'm picturing the grim the, the meme it's like a cartoon with the grim reaper and he's like finished with the first door and like the first door says like shut off ppc campaigns the next door says like p- dwindling ppc performance the next door is like uh business profitability slowdowns and like all these different things uh like all the woes of uh poor inventory management strategy so yeah as like an advertising person the biggest thing to like is like let your campaigns run consistently like if your campaigns shut down and you ramp them back up it's like hard to there's like some like time lag so like inertia on campaigns is so vital and maintaining that inertia Um, so that makes total sense if we were to flip it you know, some of your very best experiences when the strategy is perfect and dialed in, describe that company for us. They have someone hired and dedicated towards inventory and managing the 3PL partners, or if right. they're doing it themselves. This is usually being the position that um, kind of the adequate brands or a lot of like the aggregators that we work with, obviously they have a little bit more money, so it's a bit of an unfair advantage. Um, but even for some of the private label seller ones, the, usually the ones that we see are someone that's dedicated to staying on top of not only coordinating with who's ever managing the advertising side and maybe it's handling the listings, but also putting a lot of pressure on whether it's your warehousing partner, whether it's a 3PL, whether it's your supplier in China, and they might be taking you for a ride because they know that you're not on their asses about making sure there's product in stock. Um, it's the position that we noticed most people don't want to invest in. It's not kind of in their core dream team if they had to hire one or two people. Um, they'd rather hire an advertising manager that can help with inventory versus someone in inventory and then maybe being able to outsource advertising to a partner or to a platform. Um, so this is what we've seen usually be the biggest advantage. Um, and they're also investing in technology around it. So whether it's an inventory management system, maybe it's some sort of forecasting model, Maybe they're doing it on Google Sheets, but it's a little bit more technical. Um, They're thinking more than one dimensionally on their inventory strategy. Um, And they're looking at all the smaller bells and whistles because the the millions are in the pennies. And if they can build out and win off these small wins or the quicker inventory injections, like it's not the funnest topic to talk about, but it's the ones that actually move the needle and directly benefit the profitability, right? Yeah. You know, I'm just picturing like the the quit your job, start an Amazon company, Lambo on the beach in Hawaii. Work, Might be me in lap- the future, Michael, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> working from your laptop on the beach, which if anyone's ever worked on their laptop on the beach, number one, it's miserable. Your computer's overheating. It's burning your legs. There's sand getting in everywhere. You can't see because it's too bright. All, yeah, the screen bounces off. It's a nightmare. Yeah. Also, you're at the beach. What are you doing working? That's not that's not a brag. Um, we get like that. And then like the reality of like running a successful e-commerce company on Amazon is good logistics, like being sure that the moving parts are moving, all the cogs in the machine are humming along and well oiled. So I think this is such a good topic, and we do this a lot on the show where it's like, it's time to eat your vegetables, kids. Um, So I'm so happy that you're here and doing this series that we'll be doing together, which is like introing how 
individuals, and I think it's so important, like who, whatever company that someone is at, whether it's a huge company and there's a dedicated person to this, or if you're a solopreneur and you're dedicating some time to this, how to get, how to get the ball rolling. So I think like if we start with the sort of the, the more solopreneur side, people that are individual sellers, like, like what things should they start with? Like, let's say they've been humming along in, you know, maybe surviving, not thriving in this area. What kinds of things should they like do after they listen to this episode to, to get the ball rolling kind of? So, so there's two, and I would personally recommend, it's not something that needs, especially with a smaller business, unless you're talking about a, a lot of SKUs, like we don't need to overcomplicate it. You just, you, you need to eat your vegetables. And if you lock in a couple hours a week to actually just do the, the grunt work, it's kind of like the bookkeeping and financials. Like it just mm. needs to get done. Like if you just do those as a, like a solopreneur, it doesn't become as big of a mess as you think it is. And it's, it's not more complicated. Can you detail, can you detail out that, uh, that grunt work? What does that grunt work look like? So usually it's, it's a mix of, uh, coordinating with suppliers in terms of coordinating the freight to whether it's to their own garage or maybe it's to some sort of prep center. Um, it's pushing the prep center or the 3PL to be able to coordinate the freight to Amazon in time based off of like correct inventory restrictions if they're still getting hit with inventory restrictions. And then it's more about just the healthy bookkeeping of the Amazon account. So this is checking uh, pretty frequently. So let's say bi-weekly or monthly for removals, inactive SKUs that need to get pulled out because they're impacting your IPI score. It might just be overall checking the inventory health in terms of how quickly are products moving over in terms of is your sales turnover healthy enough that Amazon's benefiting you or are you sending stock and it's staying there for 90 days and it's actually putting you at a huge disadvantage as you grow because of all the the downfalls that come with kind of hitting your IPI score uh, on a really early stage. So these are some of the biggest bookkeepings that we have. Awesome. So, so let's keep talking to Sammy, the solopreneur, uh, Sammy, the seller, the solopreneur. Um, let's say they've launched on Amazon and they, they've seen IPI score before, but they haven't put too much thought into it. Yeah. Is this something that when we're starting to you know, shore up our processes about inventory management, that's something that you recommend people begin looking at? Yeah, I think it comes down again, like for the solo entrepreneur, obviously when you start first build out your listings, you're gonna have a little bit more trouble in terms of getting the right inventory restrictions. And uh, we can dive into the deep end for like recommendations on how to increase limits if you're still gonna hit with it, of course. Um, but it really comes down to like for the solo entrepreneur, just do your checks and balances. Um, so like we've seen for like smaller businesses, if they're doing private label, they might be doing some wholesale reselling major brands and they have some sort of brand authority. Um, just doing these health checks on, let's say a monthly basis, it's enough to basically get by. Do I think it's necessary to bring someone on? No, uh, I, I think you gotta figure it out um, because there's not too many, I don't wanna say agencies that specifically focus on like inventory performance. And it it's because it doesn't become a huge issue until you kind of let the water burn for too long is what we've noticed. So once you get to a certain point, like we've seen a lot of the thresholds be around 500K to a million a year, and they're doing more than 15 to 20 SKUs, this is when the waters get really murky because they're sending multiple shipments from either China, which 
obviously, as, as you guys have seen, the, the nightmares in terms of the freight correspondence and where those are going to and the reroutes and the, the false promises from the suppliers. But um, it ends up usually coming down to maybe the 3PL is dropping the ball. Uh, maybe you're sending it all to your garage, which you should be focusing on scaling the company. So trying to outsource that to the right partner that actually knows how to do that from a fulfillment perspective. These are all things where as a solopreneur, you, you have 24 hours in a day like everyone else. So um, whether it's automation tools and there's some inventory, but I recommend for the solo entrepreneur, like get the Google sheet, like manually track everything, do your checks and balances. And then when you have a, a agency partner or you decide to bring someone in house, you, you can measure success outside of places like advertising or like sales performances, because usually this is where people struggle in terms of like account management, because it's, it's a very arbitrary term. And unless the agency has a good pulse and talks to your warehousing partner, um, it's just, it's very uh, a disintegrated approach. I like to get granular. So you mentioned like starting out, getting a Google sheet to track everything. Could you describe what that Google sheet looks like? So how I would build it out was I'd almost have two or three tabs. So mm -hmm. I would have a tab tracking all shipments. So this would be a tab for shipments internationally in terms of like, let's say inbound shipments. Um, and then there would be shipments, whether it's leaving your house or it's leaving your prep center, any of those. Um, and ideally, like if there was a status of them, even like once a week, so you can see, did your prep center forget to do it? Um, did the status not update from international freight? Small business, there's not a ton of them. So if there's only a couple line items of tracking numbers, it's not hard to manage. So tab one would be all about just uh, shipping visibility because there's a lot of money usually lost there. The second tab would be on hand inventory outside of Amazon. So this would be whether it's in your garage, whether you're using a prep center, whether you do have a 3PL partner that has storage, what their on hand looks like with ASINs. Um, and if you want to, right on the right hand side, like every time you do a new shipment, just add a little subtract. So you have a, a kind of an ongoing trend. Um, this is usually the easiest way to track what's moving out of it. And then I'd have a third sheet that on a weekly basis would be your seller central inventory report. They get a pulse of what's in stock, uh, what might be inactive, if there's any pending returns that need to get out of Amazon. These three things will cover 80% of like the, the troubles that you're gonna run into. Um, and majority of them end up coming down to, can you just keep that hygiene clean? Um, and from a shipping perspective, it's just it's usually putting pressure, whether it's on the supplier, that carrier shipper, asking for updates, or going to your prep center and just being saying, hey, you're supposed to be 48 hours, where is it? Or, hey, you said three day turnaround, it's on day five and I haven't seen visibility on the warehouse management system, for example. So these small uh, dials, uh, you just don't wanna get taken advantage of as a small business. And um, if you're a solo entrepreneur, you can't juggle everything. Um, and if you don't have the ball, even just a little nudges, they make all the difference so that your partners and the suppliers, they all know that like this is in your court and you are watching this as a hawk. Um, so mm -hmm. this is what I recommend. Cool. As we go a little further down, let's say, you know, Sammy, the solo entrepreneur, begins gaining traction, they're expanding their SKU list, they're starting to grow revenues. After they have sort of been tracking these things in a Google Sheet, what are some, what are the, like, what's the next tier up in terms of considerations for them to make? Like, is this when we're start, starting to talk about uh, like FBA versus FBM strategy? Or like, wh where do we go for after we've sort of just been, you know, maybe just doing FBA only? The, 
and my my opinions kind of change over time because you get into that conversation about FBM and it almost becomes a rabbit hole. Um, it becomes almost like a political conversation. It's like people are completely on the right or completely on the left with the idea oh, of wow. whether FBM is a good idea or not. Uh, but at face value, what I, I feel that Sally, the solo entrepreneur, has probably learned that once you get to 10, 15, 20 SKUs over the past 12 to 18 months is that it's not if something will go wrong with Amazon, it's more about just when. Mm-hmm. And we've just seen people be uh, ill-prepared for kind of the the ifs that happen and when those happen. Um, so usually like FBM is a very secondary afterthought. And for a lot of brands, it's it's a, a no man's land of, we will never look at it. Um, and for most small businesses, we'll probably advise against it. There's a place that it traditionally will make sense, either if it's a heavy item, maybe you need a lot more control because it's more of like a branding experience. Um, but most like solo entrepreneurs just can't handle it. They think they can and they think maybe you can save a couple bucks, but like the envision of like a fulfillment by Amazon model for a small entrepreneur, it makes the most sense. The, the same reason that for small business, I recommend them doing the shipments themselves, like labeling and polybagging, but once they do it themselves once, outsource it. Um, if you're gonna do a repetitive pass more than one or two times, I like to automate it, document it. Stephen Pope does a really good job at this in terms of like building out these SOPs and then passing it off. Do it enough that you get comfortable with it, but not enough that it ends up harming the rest of your strategy or focusing on growth or working with your PPC manager to make sure that things are up and running. So FBM is a good strategy, but I think what it comes down to is that Sally, the sole entrepreneur, knows that Christmas is coming, uh, winter is coming, and if they're not ready for it, like there will be some sort of restriction that hits. Um, and whether it's to just make sure your top performers are in stock, whether you set it up at your house so that it's ready just in case and you have the listings prepared for FBA versus FBM. We see a lot of sellers just create a separate variant that has FBM. So the second they need to, it's more about just literally clicking on the light switch. Um, It's secondary, but if you have that natural intention, your warehouse partner knows, you know, Amazon knows, you're not scrambling last second because a product's out of stock because the warehouse didn't send it in in time, or you didn't look at this till the weekend and now there's two days left of stock because the advertising's going so well and either you're gonna run out of stock or you need to turn your campaigns off, which both are detrimental to the business. So all these small things start to add up, but um, for Sally, the sole entrepreneur, keep it simple. Like I think that's the easiest way. I use like KISS a lot, which is like keep it simple, stupid. Um, People wanna overcomplicate it because they wanna try to win the extra buck every here and there, it's just a suicide mission. Once you get to five or 10 employees, you have a little bit more control and and, uh, finesse, but in the meantime, focus on product launches, focus on optimizing ads, like get down to the core of it and just make sure that it's just inventory striking a little long, right? As long as it's getting healthy, there's no questions asked. It seems common with a lot of the larger clients that we work with that like they have that FBM fallback. It's like, okay, we'll do FBA. And if some kind of issue happens there, it's like, boom, we have like healthy FBM reserves to like activate and keep the sales rolling. So I always thought, I always found that very interesting. And, you know, with the context that you mentioned, it, it makes sense. It, it seems like there's a degree of like the business being anti-fragile or, or the business being a little bit more robust or enduring if it does have that FBM a backup, I guess I'll say. You you need to be able to trust yourself, right? Like yeah. FBM is not an easy game. Um, mm-hmm. Can it be profitable 
in some scenarios, yes. And can it be a valid, viable business model? When we see some brands do only FBM, um, yeah. sometimes yeah. we advise against it, sometimes we advise for it, just depending on the brand. But most warehouses aren't prepared, especially if there is a spike in volume or they do end up having their ads start to really outperform, like they can't keep up with it. Um, you're putting your trust in either your own hands and you're trying to fulfill orders in 24 to 48 hours and it, now the ball's in your court or you're, you're trusting a third party partner, um, which is good, but you need to make sure there's enough consistency and confidence there because now it, it, it doesn't come down to, the worst case scenario is if uh, you do FBAs, you're out of stock which I know, Michael, on your guys, and I can't imagine how frustrating that is, and that causes a whole other issues. If you drop the ball with FBM, like your account could be over, right? Mm. That means inventory getting held, that means money getting pulled back, like they will right. freeze the account um, because it's customer experience. So it's just making sure you're ready to pull that trigger. It's a powerful trigger, but if you're not ready for it, like it could crumble the entire castle. Wow. Um, you know, in our pre-show notes, we were talking a little bit about NARF. And this was a word that I hadn't heard of, um, but it seemed like something to mention on this introductory episode for people to think about, uh, especially with a lot of our people listening from the U.S., be a lot of U.S.-based uh, companies on this, on the other end of our microphones over here. Uh, can you comment a little bit about that? Like, is there anything that people should know about this? NARF, NARF is my favorite conversation. Really? It's like so underutilized and people are so blind to it, I think. And the reason that I'm also so bullish is, so for context, I was telling you, Michael, like, so we work with a lot of the aggregators to do their fulfillment. Um, so we get to see a lot of where the strategy is going into, or we get to kind of see underneath the rugs of kind of what, what they're utilizing or what strategies. And I'll go pretty deep into it because I find it super interesting where they're putting money or where they're hiring resources, which we can get into. <laughs> but one of the things that we see any like bigger brand, let's say they're doing more than, um, more than let's say 1 million as just kind of a benchmark. But for small businesses too, they can definitely utilize it is that on their amazon.com account, they're utilizing NARF fulfillment, which is that North American remote fulfillment, which means that you have Amazon Canada activated. So you went into your listing and activated Amazon Canada, but they're, and it's available on amazon.ca if you looked, um, but they're using your US fulfillment to do so. So if Blair from Toronto buys it, it comes in from uh, uh, Idaho for example, to my location. What people don't speak about is more than twofold. One is that the customer experience for Blair here in Canada is absolutely horrible, Michael. Like it, it's a really bad experience. So if we look at it and if you wanna run this exercise, go to amazon.ca, change your address. So it's some sort of Canadian address, type in AMZ Prep and put it there so you have an idea of like what a Canadian address would be. Go find your products and, and you'll see exactly it. it. Usually the products will say like uh, anywhere from seven to 15 business days for shipping. Brutal. Um, mm -hmm. There'll be imports and duties fees, um, some that you oh, wow. see on Amazon and then some right when it arrives to your door, they'll just say like cash up Blair, like give, give me the money from who's ever doing the carrier shipments. And then also like brands might be advertising and like the, it's not only does it look like FBM, it looks way worse. So you get a bunch of these uh, customers that are clicking on the listings, your click through goes down, your conversion goes down. If you have advertising running, that goes down. Um, all of these things that people then look at their Amazon Canada sales and say, yeah, it's not worth it to expand there because look at, 
Look at how much sales are there. It's such a small piece of it. But the bigger brands, they're actually sending the product to an Amazon Canada fulfillment hub, um, which one now obviously enables FBA, but two, which is probably the coolest part, is that it divides your inventory restrictions. So if you mm -hmm. do get hit with inventory limits, if you are shipping to Canada, like it only accounts your US fulfillment, versus if you open up an Amazon Canada fulfillment warehouse, you now have a whole new set of inventory limits for Canada. So it comes with all the benefits of it. Um, it's not right for every brand, but majority of the brands that we see, uh, wholesalers or the aggregators, they're all now transferring it because they're now getting a more utility on amazon.ca. It seems like a no-brainer for, and we've talked about this on the show before, you know, American-based sellers expanding to Canada. It seems like this is definitely something to look into. So if, they're, if they are doing NARF, and it's, uh, I think it's funny that you said it's your favorite topic to talk about. Yeah. Um, <laughs> That's where I'm geeking out now. It's, it's, yeah. So, so like if they were doing that and like somebody, all the customers in Canada, they're searching, they're seeing these awful listings and all these intense fees and associated with it. Like what is the alternative for a U.S. company who wants to start shipping in Canada? The alternative option is getting it inside of an Amazon FBA Canada warehouse. Got it. Um, and sellers usually think it's more complicated and you got to do this whole international expansion. Um, there's one very specific thing, and there's tons of companies that, that can do it. It's called an NRI, which is a non-resident importer. Mm -hmm. Once you get this, you can usually get it in a day or two. I think it's like $100. It now allows you to like legally import your products into Canada. So whether you're shipping to, let's say, like a 3PL warehouse, or maybe you can ship directly from your home or your warehouse in the US to an Amazon Canada warehouse, it now allows you to activate Amazon Canada. Um, and I, I, I don't know, Michael, how much stuff you guys have to do on the Canadian market, um, but advertising is like ridiculously underutilized. Like people don't understand like how easy it is to even like start ranking um, because there's just, your competitors aren't there and the ones that are there are probably using Nerf fulfillment. So you can outrank them really quickly. Uh, and then the, the advertising cost of it to acquire new customers is just significantly lower. It's smaller, but it's more profitable. For sure. You know, Amazon, selling on Amazon in America is like, uh, to use another Game of Thrones reference, it's like living in Winterfell where it's like cold and you're like a hard person because like the competition is so strong. Everyone's launching there. It's like a huge Amazon presence for consumers and i feel like other countries it's a little bit softer uh to advertise in so uh you know it's not always true every niche industry is slightly different but i would say like that's the generality um yeah. so yeah i've seen that too on the advertising side easily a lot of brands they'll end up wanting to like overcomplicate it so they'll they'll go from com and they'll immediately jump into like the uk and start going mm -hmm. to like Italy and France and Germany. But then like they forget, I was like, guys, I was like, give me some love up here. At least like, at least mm -hmm. show us that it's worth it, right? Like there's so many sellers that will just jump the gun. Um, but Canada on average can get anywhere from five to 20% uh, of what your .com can do. Yeah. So on the low end, we've seen 5%. If it's a fast moving category, um, just Amazon Canada doesn't have the uh, amount of depth of products. So like right. on .com, you can find, like you type something in and there's, there's a correlation for it. 
it's not like that on Amazon Canada. There's all the major categories do really well. If it's a hyper niche one, you might have to do a little bit more research, but there's 30 million people up here. Like people are searching for it and no one's waiting eight to 15 days. So they will go to your competitor. Um, but people think that Canada is just too small of a market. My recommendation is try it out because your Amazon UK will probably have a lot of similarities in terms of size. So it's an yeah. easy way to get a taste of what an international market looks like. So you don't um, get over promised the world and think the UK will change the business overnight. They're, they're all relatively the same. Amazon.com is just, it's a, it's a monster. It's wild. Yeah. I mean, think of it this way, like normally in America for American sellers, like the biggest states are California, Texas, New York, Florida, and you mentioned 30 million people. That's the population of Texas. So it's like gaining a nut. It's like having 51 states instead of just 50 and like doubling, like, you know, one of the biggest states for sure. So that seems like a no brainer to wrap up this first episode here. Uh, when it comes to advertising, um, this is where I have some things to say, uh, in, in, in the past, what, we've worked on with clients where this some of our best best performing clients will contact us they'll say hey we are running low on stock because they're doing all those things that you mentioned earlier in the show they're saying hey i'm running low on stock we need to slow down a particular product so we don't stock out because stocking out is disastrous it's going to slow down our inertia on the campaign it's going to take a little time to get it back up and running so the strategies that we've done is basically get that intel and begin to start sort of tightening up that campaign. So it's a cool opportunity. Like if you have a product and you're doing a lot of like research-based campaigns, you're doing like a lot of competitor conquest campaigns, it could be a time where maybe you strengthen the a cost meaning you you focus a little bit more on profitability. So like everyone knows if you reduce your bids, uh, you will appear in a slightly lower position. Uh, ideally, you will still convert somewhat the same because it's the same product for the same targeting. And then you're able to sort of slow down the pace of sales while boosting profitability so that you don't stock out. Uh, that's been perhaps the most popular strategy that like we get the notification from the client and then we begin to optimize the ACoS a little bit lower across the board for that product to uh, to like slow down the sales, boost profitability. Uh, and I've had it on my radar for a long time. For the longest time, we've only connected to the advertising API, which doesn't have inventory levels. But coming up this year, it, we've had it on our list pretty high to connect to other APIs that Amazon offers so that we can begin pulling in inventory levels and, and begin to sort of like, you know, red, yellow, green, like hey, red, you're running out, green, you have so much so that people can sort of see that and then like switch over to their their bidding strategy and their budgeting strategy, like all in one place. So I'm like really excited about that. So that's so cool. It yeah, makes so it, much sense. Like it, it's crazy how disconnected those two usually are. And they are literally one-to-one -one bases, but like Michael, you guys will get let known two days before they're about to run out of stock that it, it's on the last mile, which is crazy to think about versus like, how do, how do, you, how do you guys get the full visibility? So yeah. for the time it's in a warehouse to how long that turnover takes, because if the warehouse takes three days and then it's a pallet, so then it has to coordinate a freight pickup. So that takes another 
five days and then Amazon needs to check it in, let's say three days. And then mm-hmm. just by chance it's in New York, but it needs to go to Connecticut. So they got to do a FC transfer. Like it's, it's a nightmare and you're losing out. I, I would love to be able to over time. It'd be super cool to do something with you guys. I'm like, um, when you guys have to pull back or when you go yeah. to stock, like how do we actually measure like how bad are you actually losing money? Because every, it's great we get to optimize profit, but every time that we're doing that, I'm assumingly we're putting ourselves back a couple of weeks because we're not getting the, the new acquisitions that we want to. So it's, I'd be interested to see like actual number on how much this is actually messing things up. Yeah, that'd be so fascinating to be able to chart like this was your trajectory, but because of the missed time, it like falls to zero temporarily. And then you have to go back up. And like if you picture those lines, like the one that didn't go to zero, like can sort of just continue on, continue to pace on. So uh, the, the aggregators are doing something similar where like when mm-hmm. they hold like accountability with, with our warehouses, for example, wow. they have these like trend pacing lines that it's like a it's like a margin line that you're either over or under based off of like what their current seller velocity is. And then depending on, they're measuring it all off um, sales to product turnover, depending on how much days of stock they have inside Amazon. So it's just like really cool idea where now they can also put pressure on the warehouse or the seller can get put pressure on their 3PL partner, whoever it is, because now there's this clear as day correlation that you guys prepared it on day four versus day two, right? And that impacted directly how many sales and a new customer yeah. LTV is over three purchases. So now it's not one purchase you lost, but over the year it's three purchases. Like this echo effect and like the rippling can go a lot deeper. People don't think about it into that depth, but like every new customer could have potentially been another 10. Um, and it really yeah. scares me when, when sellers don't have it down and they just don't traditionally care about it until something goes wrong, which is the, <sighs> the aftermath. Yeah, you know, it's and it's sort of a it's now that I think about it, I almost feel like it's like shared responsibility, right? I feel like if someone's going to hire a PPC agency, like hopefully I feel like we don't really do this and, and perhaps we should and perhaps all agencies should, which is just like. Do you have some, hey, dear client, do you have some kind of internal checks and balances to alert us as quick as possible on when things will be running out of stock until we eventually build something ourselves? I think that's a really fascinating thing. And like, hopefully the client says, yes, I do. I'll let you know, you know, X days when to start throttling back. Cause like, that's my calculated time frame of like when we won't be throttled and ideally we're not throttled at all. Right. I'm sure that's like the, the Holy grail Perfect scenario. Yeah. yeah. Um, but when those situations do arise, are we able to identify them quick enough so that, you know, an email could get fired off. We can go into the account and take action. I feel like that's a new, we have this like running list of like every PPC task that you could do and at like what frequency it should be thought about. And I feel like, I don't know if we have like inventory check written down on it, but I feel like I got to write it down right now. Yeah. Or getting a pulse. Like one of the other things is like, um, the PPC manager getting introduced to the 3PL like knowing yeah. that it's bigger than the solo entrepreneur. Cause once they know that like, it's not Sally running her ad campaigns or managing, no, like there's a team that is, is getting charged. Like there is a service here and that if there's not enough accountability from the left or the right, like ideally right now it goes, let's say to Michael, to Sally, to the warehousing partner versus if you guys could bridge that gap and say, 
okay, who's preparing the product? How long is that turnover, right? What, what checks and balances do they need to make sure that product actually gets out in time? And God forbid if they mislabel a product or they're supposed to put it in bubble wrap and now it's not in bubble wrap. So Amazon takes another five days. Like there's all these things that like, one of the issues is of course, just like timelines. Like can you forecast it properly? But the other kind of like ugly conversation is that maybe they just dropped the ball. Maybe they don't know Amazon well enough and they thought the barcode could go on the left, but it has to go on the right. Or they didn't know there was a new expiry that has to be in a font large enough for your grandma to read versus the current expiry label. And all these other things can cause these pain points. And if you're scrambling during Christmas and the warehouse is jammed and you're putting pressure, like there's bound to be an issue. And it's just, it's just pre-planning that no one really wants to do. Um, but for the big brands, like they have someone really on the ball for it. Um, and it's an investment, but if you can kind of measure that with dollars, I almost guarantee like once you get to a certain amount, like you can, you can justify it because how you mentioned, Michael, like you can get that trend line and have that dollar difference. That dollar difference could have probably justified bringing someone in, maybe part-time, maybe have mm. the agency, maybe jump in a little bit more for some extra services. Like there's a bunch of cool stuff you could probably do. Blair, we've covered the gamut, I think, to get people up and running and level up at it. Because I mean, if someone's listening to the show, they want operational excellence. They want to be a better performer. They want better, cleaner, more efficient systems. So I know we joke around and say like, it's the vet eating the, your vegetables. Um, and that's really to, to like get our minds right. But I think at the end of the day, like we do want like healthy, high functioning, efficient companies. And I think that some of the things that we touched on, we touched on, you know, when you're getting started, what like that simple Google sheet looks like touched on FBA and FBM. Uh, we talked about like the, like the good scenarios where you have good, effective inventory management. And of course, one of the biggest ones is that your inventory that your inventory stays healthy and that your ads stay on and stay moving because uh, it's just more and more vital for that. Covered NARF, a term that I had not heard of before, which sounds way more important than it's like gaining another state, like being able to sell into Canada. Just Texas times two, basically. I like Yes, that. that's awesome. Uh, I'm excited for our future episodes where we're going to touch on some more intermediate things like okay, now how do we optimize these things? Um, once we've got a good foundation, like how do we pull more efficiency and effectiveness out of it? Um, and then sort of the last stage that we were talking about is like data-driven ideas and like where we scale and like how we improve uh, like company valuation due to like operational excellence. So I, I feel like there's so many, and like, or maybe even selecting like a 3PL and, and things of that nature. So I feel like there's so many levels that, to touch on here. And I'm so thankful for you coming on, sharing your your experience. People can go check you out at amzprep.com. And uh, any last words for our, for the good people out there? Eat your damn vegetables. I think that's the only thing I can say. Uh, yes. If you guys have questions, just uh, happy to give me a show. I'm, uh, I'm trying to get more active on LinkedIn. I'm working on TikTok, but I'm, I'm working on it. So don't hold me accountable yet, but maybe when this comes out, I'll be a little bit better, but um, LinkedIn's probably the best way. I do a lot of voice notes to people that ask, but um, I'm working on it. Right on. You know, LinkedIn, when I'm active on it, it's awesome, it's great. And like, there's like, you get this positive feedback loop. It's, it's just like with Amazon, right? Like, uh, TikTok's a really interesting one. I need, I would need like someone to, to help me with TikTok. But I feel like there's a lot of like entrepreneurs, like 
marketers, like even in our space uh, that, you know, TikTok is such a new dynamic platform, but I don't know if people want to hear us talk about TikTok. We're going to end it here. Yeah. Have a good one. I'll talk to you soon. Bye.